Welcome to the Littler Labor and Employment Podcast, conversations about employment and labor law issues that impact the workplace. Hello, everyone. My name is George Lopez. I chair the Immigration and Global Mobility Practice Group at Littler. With me today is Michelle White, who is an experienced practitioner within the group, and we will be discussing the presidential proclamation regarding the suspension of entries of certain immigrants and non-immigrants into the United States. We've kind of waited a bit of time as to we gotten some more interpretational guidance, and there still is some ambiguity in reference to what this law really means to U.S. employers, but we'd like to go a little bit into that, starting with really what let's, we're not going to go so much into the terms and what the actual proclamation says, because I guess by this point, if you listen to this, you are basically have already come across language that describes that. But in essence, what I'd want to at least minimally address is really what are the three main criterions for restrictions, and then we'll go from there. First of all, the proclamation affects only four visa categories, H-1B, H-2B, J, and L. And then there are certain criteria among that category that must be met. First and foremost, the individual must be outside the United States on the effective date. They must not have a non-immigrant visa and one of the defined categories that is valid on the effective date. And also they must not have any other official travel document that would allow them in. Well, the most common one is an advanced parole document, which is usually provided when an individual is applying for a green card or adjustment of status in the United States as of that effective date. With that said, I know that Michelle, you and I have had numerous discussions with clients And although we we do not want to go into the nuances of what the actual order reads itself, but in practice, what are we seeing from clients overall that is of concern to them and that we think we should be addressing here? I think the first question that clients always ask me is, my employees here in the United States, they don't have a valid visa stamp. Can I still file an extension for them? And where does that only take us? Does it matter to us whether the individual is in or outside the United States at that point for purposes of adjudication of a visa status application, whether it's an extension, for example? Yeah. So for an extension, whether or not they have a valid or or not valid visa stamp, if we're simply extending their status and they're present in the United States, that is not affected by the executive order. The people that are affected are those that are outside of the United States and do not have a valid visa stamp. We can still file an extension for them if they're expiring at any time, but they would not be eligible to re-enter the United States until they were able to get a valid visa stamp at the consulate, which, as George mentioned, are all closed and then they would have to enter the United States after the executive order has been lifted, which hopefully will be on December 31st, 2020. Some of the things that we really should clarify as well, some of the points that have been brought up recently from both CVP as well as USCIS and Department of State. So one of them, for example, is that Canadians are visa exempt and therefore not subject to the proclamation. So I guess, Michelle, for, from a practical perspective, that means that HL or J non-immigrant Canadians that are needing to process at a border point to be admitted to the United States without a visa 
necessarily are allowed to come in and therefore are really not subject to this provision. It's not that they're exempt. That just doesn't really apply to them overall. Canadians would be allowed entry. Correct. Right. The, The other thing that we've gotten clarification on is that Department of State takes the position that a person who is inside the United States at the time of the proclamation or uh, are holding a non-immigrant visa in one of the defined categories or an immigrant visa, and we'll describe that in a second, on the effective date are not subject to the proclamation. So therefore, being inside the United States or were inside the United States at the time of the effective date under their interpretation would allow you to basically re-enter the United States. Now, what I'd like to say in reference to that is let's make sure that because some of these interpretations uh, as the original proclamation was a little bit loose in the language it was using and therefore was not really as concise as it could be, there has been some, not uh, so much ambiguity, but concern as to interpretation of some of the provisions, for example, a visa for our purposes normally means a visa stamp on the passport that allows you entry into the country. And that's what the Department of State would be concerned about when they say visa, that's normally the nomenclature they would use for, for purposes of clarification. USCIS may or may not use that language. Technically, we should be talking about when we're saying visa status, basically a visa stamp on the passport. So that we've got to be careful, though, when we advise employees or basically communicate with them in reference to their right to travel, try to find clarification whether or not they have a visa stamp on their passport as of the effective date or not, because that would basically mean that there may be an application process. We also would advise, correct me if you you disagree or have some alternative advice here, Michelle, but we also would advise to make sure that we want to make sure that those individuals that are traveling should at the last minute kind of coordinate with those that are responsible for managing that travel to make sure there has been no updated guidance that may or may not affect that interpretation. Yes, I agree with you, George. I think that it's important to, even though, you know, at the moment we, we say, okay, well, the executive order doesn't apply to me because I have a valid visa stamp, I can travel. Things are very fluid and with, with the circumstances that are the way they are now, it's difficult to pass a regulation that would affect people within the United States because it has to go through the normal regulatory process. But for individuals who are outside of the United States, sometimes, as we've seen within these past few months, the president can issue executive orders that could stop them from re-entering. So that's why we would say, you know, please communicate with your counsel prior to traveling. Right. And I think one of the things that we should clarify that we didn't address at the beginning of this conversation is that the executive order that basically extended or basically implemented the non-immigrant restrictions for those visa categories also to apply to an extension of the previous hold on immigrants from entering the United States. And let's define that. An immigrant is defined as really somebody who's coming to the United States with a green card or permanent intent to use normal language. So it's clear. So from an immigrant perspective, that applies to individuals that are outside the United States that are processing for their green card and are eligible to basically pursue that application. 
the the ban or stop of that processing means that individuals that are in final stages of green card processing that are physically outside the country are not eligible to be processed and continue to be processed to enter the United States. But does that mean for our purposes that they're able to do it in the United States or is just would the restriction also prohibit that? Michelle? No, they're still able to apply for a green card and be eligible for a green card within the United States if, if anyone outside the United States, as you said. Right. So to clarify what that means for, for, for everybody is that an individual who is physically in the United States that has applied for green card status in the United States and is eligible to enter and exit on a advanced parole document that's normally issued for travel purposes when you're applying for adjustment of status, they should not be affected by the bar that prohibits the entry of those individuals when they are processing at a U.S. consulate. I guess the most basic way of looking at it is to basically look at it from the perspective of whether or not someone is looking at entering the United States and needing to have visa processing implemented that could be affected. One of the reasons it could be affected outside the ban is overall the processing of the fact that the consulates are not processing any any visa applications at this point. There's a defined date here, right? December 31st, as to what this uh, visa status expires? Correct, unless, uh, uh, unless continued, yeah. Unless continued, so there may be that option. But we're discussing some practicalities of that, is, and that is, since we can't, you know, we have to do stateside processing, which means an extension or, or change of status, and if the person doesn't have, have that visa status overall, does that allow for the individual to basically process stateside and get the visa approved? And I think we touched base on that. The answer is yes, we can do that. The question then becomes, are they eligible to get a visa stamp once the consulate's open if they have a pre-existing L or H on their passport? Our reading or at least my understanding of the interpretation would be that if they have a valid H-1B or L-1, we file for a stateside extension and it is approved, then they would be eligible to leave and come back to the United States. Is that your reading as well? Yes, that's my reading as well. And to your point about in-country processing, companies who are applying for a new L-1 or H-1Bs that were selected in the H-1B lottery or even CAP-exempt H-1Bs for individuals who are outside of the United States, then the application process through USCIS in-country can still be done. The petitions can be filed and approved, but the beneficiaries of those petitions just will not be able to apply for a visa stamp or come to the United States until after the executive order is listed. And I would say from a practical perspective, especially for the L's, since L1s have such a high scrutiny and are subject to many requests for evidence, by the time the petition is filed, the request for evidence is responded to and the consults reopen, it may be January anyway. So for those companies that, you know, have L's that would be filed through U.S. immigration here, here in the United States, this executive order might not delay the process that much. Right, because the bottom line is if if the current administration is uh, gets another four years, then there is consideration of what would happen after January. 
If it doesn't, although we don't know from a crystal ball perspective what any new administration would do, our feeling is it would not be as uh, uh, draconian or onerous uh, interpretations of U.S. laws, and there might be a little bit more user-friendly to American businesses from an immigration perspective on the corporate visa scenarios that we're discussing. But, you know, one thing I noticed, Michelle, is when we're looking at this scenario is that, you know, there's certain limited visa categories, but there are others that are allowed. I mean, there are options here. There's there's an O, there's an E. There are other visa categories. So those are not affected overall, right? So we can kind of consider whether or not there may be some alternatives here for some categories of individuals that may be allowed to come in. That's right. There's, like you mentioned, there's the O, the E, which not every country, but many companies may be eligible for the E visa, and then the TN for Mexicans and Canadians. So there may be other visa options that companies can explore. Also, there are some exceptions to the executive order. They are not very broad at all, but it's important to see if possibly you qualify. And that would be someone who is providing essential services to the food supply chain or in the national interest of the United States. So, George, I know we both had some experiences with attempting to work with this national interest exemption, but do you want to talk a little bit about it? Because it is a high bar, but there may be some qualified people out there that, that would qualify under the national interest exemption. Right. I mean, basically, we're looking at scenarios where it is going to be considered in a critical type infrastructure. It could be things such as defense, law enforcement, diplomacy, national security, or involved in medical care to individuals who have contracted COVID, as some examples, or medical research at U.S. facilities that are dealing with COVID. Now, I will say that we've come across COVID or medical-related exemptions that we've tried to do in the last few months in reference to the European travel bans. And our experience has been that the focus has been mostly on direct patient care or access to individuals that are affected than more superficial, you know, third-party review or involvement with it. It's a much higher bar or standard. I think if you look at the provision of the law that allows for these waivers to be approved, it's a section of the law called 212F of the Immigration Nationality Act. Uh, under that provision, historically, there have been exceptions that are allowed, and we've seen uh, an approval rates, I think, uh, looking at historically about less than 10%. In this category, prior to the COVID, I can't tell you what the COVID numbers look like and once this, this provision was put in, but it is something to consider that uh, it is a high bar and it's unfortunately not been liberally applied, but it does exist as an option for us to consider in those situations. So one of the things we were, uh, have been discussing, Michelle, is basically the ancillary provisions within the uh, proclamation that hasn't been given a lot of focus, but we feel that it is probably as important, if not more important, than the actual effect it can have. 
And I want to throw some statistics out there because it kind of affects us a little bit of, a, of this review. The USCIS just came out with a study that they basically finished up on in late March of 2020 that analyzed visa petitions for the H-1B visa category. And I, I found an interesting statistic, and that is that the overall approval rate in the last year, fiscal year of the Obama administration of 2016 was basically about 88%. That went down to about 79% in fiscal year 2018 under Trump. But in 2019 fiscal year, it actually went back up to about 92%. And that's, um, I think, reflective a little bit of the fact that these visa petitions are getting harder to basically get adjudicated and approved, so there's more work involved. But I think uh, companies as well as their, their counsels are basically, you know, realize that then if properly packaged and presented and supporting it, we're able to get those corrected adjudications. Why is that relevant to us? Because one of the things that is in the additional measures that the executive order talks about is basically the um, review of the H-1B visa process to determine whether or not the presence of H-1B workers would be basically negatively affecting U.S. workers. We don't know what that means, but I think it's going to come under the ambit of DOL most likely because DOL has the jurisdictions through the labor condition and application process of the H-1B visa process itself. And one big one that really has gone almost unnoticed is that it is directing DOL to undertake investigations of the labor condition application process for violations of those labor condition applications. That is a huge, huge consideration because the LCA is a precursor requirement for all H-1B filings. It is not a perfunctory process, but certain criteria must be met. And there has been no real enforcement since its initiation overall in the process. And Michelle, we've been concerned about that because I think this does not require any statutory or regulatory amendments because it's already in the rules. It just allows basically the resources to be implemented to initiate that process. What's been some of the concerns that we've been having in, in our conversations that we, we talked about is how it could affect our clients? I think that's a really good point, George, because in conjunction with this announcement, which, as you said, is already part of the regulations, the, the DOL audits, we have been having a couple webinars during the COVID situation where we've talked about benching workers and changes in worksite, changes in salary, furloughs, and how all of that affects the LCA, the Labor Condition Application requirements of the H-1B visas. And those possible issues that have arisen due to the pandemic, combined with the fact that the administration may start to look closer at this, there may be people that are unhappy that they were without pay when they shouldn't have been, possibly, you know, depending on the situation. All of that could factor into multiple and increased investigations for employers. It's really important that those LCAs are reviewed and adhered to and that the public access files are up to date as well. The public access file is a, a requirement of the LCA and when there is an investigation, it is the first thing that the officer is going to look at. Yeah, and I, I think we can't stress enough the importance of this particular provision being inputted in there because it's not going to require any regulatory 
again, were legislative changes to basically implement these investigations. They're already in, in the code. They're already in the regulations. So it's a matter of just finding the resources to basically implement those regulations. And uh, this, this is the equivalent of uh, I-9 audits, but it's in the DOL um, that, that is going to be dealing with, as Michelle properly said. We've been having many, many multiple discussions during the COVID downturn of the economy regarding the not only the furloughs and rifts and leaves, whether they were paid or unpaid, and what it means uh, to the employee, et cetera, as well as to the company. And these are things that I think need to be dusted off on and reviewed as to how those policies and how they were implemented to make sure that they are not considered to be a potential issue. If there was ever a scrutiny or review of the LCA process that was signed off by the company in reference to that process. And the LCA goes into certain things such as union activity uh, during the time period, downturns, risks, uh, and, and the prevailing wage is the biggest issue that usually gets addressed in reference to the LCA process itself. Some other things as well, and one of the things that, and this is going to be an implementation process that we're a little bit scratching our heads how it's going to work, but the order does require biometrics processing before a person is allowed to be admitted or receive a, a, a visa. Um, biometrics processing includes photographs, signatures, and fingerprints that must be done in advance. So we're thinking, how does that come into play? Will that be done at consulates, which means there could be delays in visa adjudications? Is that going to be done at the CVP at an airport, Customs and Border Protection, in reference to individuals that are coming in? If it goes in that route, I could see delays at airports in reference to processing itself. If it goes the consulate route, I could see delays at the consulates in reference to processing of those visa applications that instead of taking a routine number of days, uh, it could basically exceed and go into maybe potentially into weeks. So that's something that, that should be looked at and kind of start to be considered a little bit as well. And then there's some general rules in reference to review the EB2 and EB3 immigrant visa categories, which are green card processing for individuals that are coming in through employment-based visa applications and support. I think that, Michelle, due to our time constraints here, I, I think that this addresses, I think, that some of the key features that we wanted to address. Is there something else that you feel that we should bring up that we have not spoken of? No, I think you've covered everything. Okay. If there is any additional questions or if there is any um, clarification that you seek, by all means, you may reach out to either one of us. And always, as always, we try to keep our Littler profile up to date in reference to updates in reference to these matters and others that are continuously happening during these days. Thank you. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.